Rumpole and the Reign of Terror by John Mortimer Part 1 Truth Makes All Things Plain Safe and sound in the box room. It's a bit untidy, but a perfect hiding place. And I've done it at last. Gone and bought a word processor. It was at a reasonable price, on offer at Doxon's, where a really helpful salesperson assured me that it was an excellent buy and it would do all my spelling for me. I told him that wouldn't be necessary, as I was always in the A's for spelling at school. So... The memoirs of Hilda Rumpole. This is where it starts. It all started one afternoon when I was in number nine court at the Old Bailey not a particularly distinguished address, where I was conducting the fairly hopeless defence of one of the Timpson family, that famous clan of South London villains whose output of ordinary decent crime keeps the Rumpole family in dinners and such luxuries as lavatory cleaner, washing-up liquid and furniture polish. Members of the jury, Percy Timpson was not at work on the window of number 7 Laxton Crescent in order to obtain illegal entry by night for the purpose of theft. He was merely walking down Laxton Crescent and seeing a window unsecured and open, he was endeavouring to shut it in order to protect the householder. As you know, it is for the prosecution to prove its case. If you have the slightest doubt Members of the jury, it will be your duty, and no doubt your pleasure, to return a ringing verdict of not guilty. <laughs> I sat down then, and his honour, Judge Bullingham, known to me as the Mad Bull, proceeded to put the boot in. Members of the jury, it may come as a relief to you to emerge from the world of fantasy and make-believe into which Mr. Rumpole has led you to confront the reality of this case. Can you really believe that this man, Mr. Percy Timpson, was merely helping the owner of a strange house to shut his windows in the night? Uh, if you believe that, you'll believe anything. The mad bull did his worst. I glanced up at the public gallery. From the very front row, just above the clock, a young woman was smiling down at me as though I was, for her at least, an object of extraordinary interest. I think that Mr. Rumpole's marvellous. I really do. As he leant over the rails of the dock at the start of the lunchtime adjournment, Percy Timpson identified my apparent fan in the public gallery. That's Tiffany, my cousin Raymond's youngest. We don't see much of Ray nowadays. She worked at an hospital, married a Pakistani doctor. Oh. Yeah, I reckon she considers herself a cut above us now. What's she come here for? Just to gloat and my bit of bad luck? When we left the court at the end of the day, the young woman whom he had called Tiffany 
came up to me and my solicitor, Bonnie Bernard. Gloating seemed to be the last thing she had in mind. My whole family's always talking about you, Mr. Rumpole. The way you stand up to the judges. Oh. <laughs> I came to see you in action. I must say, I wasn't disappointed. I know you can help us. Are you in trouble? Not me. It's my husband. Oh, your husband, the doctor. You know that? Yes, I do. They've taken him away. They won't tell me where. They won't tell me anything. I think it's some sort of prison. What for? Well, I don't... Well, what do they say he's done? I don't know. And who are they, anyway? The police, I suppose. I suppose that's who they were. They said they were holding him. What for? They said he was a terrorist. Some days later, as I arrived at work, I met our so-called head of chambers, Soapy Sam Ballard, at the entrance. I noticed that all our names, painted up outside the front door, had been covered with cardboard. Terrorists, Rumpel. You mean terrorists came and stuck cardboard over all our names? No, of course not. I asked our clerk to do it. To what end? If the terrorists found out that a really important barrister was to be found here, they might well bomb the building. Well, very good of you to be concerned about me, Ballard. I have acquired a certain fame over the years in criminal courts. I've become perhaps a household name, but I doubt whether Al-Qaeda would want to bomb me. I wasn't thinking of you at all, Rumpole. Huh? I have become a leading counsel, whereas you remain, let's face it, an aging junior. I am the chairman of LAC, the Lawyers as Christians Society. As such, I am the most likely target. Now go along and have that battered old portmanteau of yours searched, will you? Tiffany Kahn, once somewhat improbably Tiffany Timson, sat on the edge of my client's chair in chambers as though prepared to rush off at any moment in search of the husband she had lost. She was easier on the eye than the rest of the Timson clan, and her eyes were dark pools filled with tears. <laughs> She spoke in a soft and gentle voice about her husband, Mahmoud Khan. Twelve years ago it was, when I got the job at Oakwood Hospital. Mm. That was when I met Mahmoud. He's a doctor. I fell in love with him. His father had come here, built up a chain of corner shops. He also bought a nice house in Kilburn. My faithful solicitor, Bonnie Bernard, ever practical, filled in the details. The house is a palace, Mr. Rumpole. Huh? Really a palace. I wish you could see it. Mahmoud's father died and left it to us. And now Mahmoud's gone and I'm alone there with the children. Uh, a boy of ten and a girl of eight. When Mahmoud's father's corner shops began to fail, he had to sell them all. But uh, he kept the house. A really nice property, Mr. Rumpole. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But your husband, Mrs. Khan, he is now... Arrested. They came for him one morning, just as he was taking the children to school. They took him away. They wouldn't give us any reason. No, of course not. Our present Home Secretary... Fred Sugden. Fred Sugden, indeed. <laughs> he has relieved the prosecution of the responsibility of making any charges or reasons for the arrest. You see, neither Dr. Carr nor his father became British citizens, so he could be deported. Back to Pakistan. He can't go back there, Mr. Rumpole. Huh? He left without them knowing it. It'd be more than his life's worth. Why? All he would ever tell me was politics. Hmm. 
And you have no idea why they took him away? Because of what he is. You mean a terrorist? No. Pakistani. That's why they're all against him. Mm -hmm. All my family are against him too. And never mind what sort of trouble they'll get into with the police. I've done the worst crime. I've married a foreigner. Uh, this government of ours has done quite enough harm to our age-old and much-prized legal system, but I don't think it has quite got to the stage of making the fact of having been born in Pakistan a criminal offence. I've got a few friends in the Home Office. I found out Dr. Khan's in Belmont. Oh. Well, that's where they put terrorist suspects. Although nobody really knows what the exact charges are. Uh, we'll do our best to find out all we can. If you want someone to say that Mahmoud's no more a terrorist than I am, there's our friend Barry. Barry who? Barrington Whiteside. Hmm? He's the hospital administrator at Oakwood. He's a real friend to both of us. His wife is Pakistani, and she's so lovely to us all. I'll make a note, Bonnie Bernard. Yeah. We could do with a character witness. He'll help Mahmoud. I know he'll help him. You'll bring him back to me, Mr. Rumpole. You'll help me find Mahmoud and get him out of trouble. All my family say you're wonderful in court. Yes, but your family usually knows what they're accused of. All the same, I'll do my best. Living with Rumpole. I think it's about time I described what it's like living with Rumpole. It's no picnic, I can assure you. Of course, he's very full of himself at the moment. He's met some girl who apparently has eyes like dark pools full of tears. Well, that's pretty understandable, as she's married to some terrorist Rumpole is actually planning to defend. At my friend Marcia's house, where I play bridge in the afternoons, I met the most charming judge, Leonard Bullingham. He says he knows Rumpole well, and quite honestly, I think he took rather a shine to me. He's promised to ask me out to lunch. I think I shall accept his invitation. I don't suppose there is such a thing as a nice prison, but Belmarsh was particularly objectionable. I was searched three times on my way in, and my file, in which I keep my notes, was taken from me, presumably because it was seen as a weapon of mass destruction. But eventually we were in the interview room with Dr. Khan. Small, thin, and apparently totally mystified by his incarceration. I am sorry, sir. I've never heard of you. Have you not? Oh. I thought I was pretty well known as a defending barrister at the Old Bailey. However... Uh, this is Mr. Bernard, my instructing solicitor. How do you do? Hello. Your wife came to see us and asked us to take on your case. This must be terrible for my wife and the children, too. They must be mystified. We've been served with a statement accusing you of association with various terrorist groups, planning to blow up important London buildings, Big Ben included. Sounds ambitious. Is there any truth in it at all? Of course not. How could there be? Do you know anyone who talks to you about terrorism in England? Anyone who says that they approve of it? If they did, I would immediately end the conversation. I love England. I have an English wife. My children go to English schools. I've spent the best part of my life here. 
England is my home, my dear, dear country. Well, you don't have to go that far. I mean, it's not compulsory to respect the royal family, eat roast beef and care deeply about cricket. Oh, but I do. I have a huge respect for Her Majesty. Tiffany can cook excellent roast beef, and I often take my boy to watch cricket at Lord's. It was all too good to be entirely true. The amused stoicism, the enthusiasm for England. Wouldn't an innocent man have boiled over with anger, raged against the authorities, damned the police, and had nothing but contempt for the country which had falsely arrested him? Would an innocent man treat the whole affair as though it were an unfortunate but slightly amusing collapse of a number of wickets? Have you any enemies, Dr. Cohn? People who might have informed the police against you. Enemies? Tiffany's family don't like me very much, but that hasn't landed me in prison, has it? No, probably not. There's only one way to flush a bit of information out of the powers that be. We're going to appeal against your detention. Then we might get some clues to what this is all about. We're going before SIAC. That's the Special Immigrants' Appeals Committee. It's chaired by a judge and heard in the law courts. You can be represented there by the counsel of your choice. I assume that will be Mr. Rumpole, whom you have now met. Mr. Rumpole, of course. Now I remember the uh, name. Yeah. I have read it often in the newspapers. Oh. <laughs> I know that you, Mr. Rumpole, are a great fighter for the truth in the courts of law. Uh, well, we can only hope that Syak will indeed turn out to be a court of law. <laughs> the Mad Bull had postponed sentence on Percy Timpson. Later that week, when I attended to see him sent down for two years, I was given an urgent message to proceed to the Old Bailey Canteen, where certain members of the Timpson family were gathered to talk to me. They were a formidable group. I had often defended Fred, Tony, Cyril, and Dennis Timpson, but Dennis was clearly the leader and spokesman, as befitted his position as my most regular client. We're here, Mr. Rumpole. On a serious matter. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't do more for Percy. It was a more or less hopeless case. It's not Percy we've come about. Hmm? That's not an important issue. It's you defending the Pakistani doctor. That terrorist you seem to want to help. I see no evidence that he's a terrorist. <laughs> Never mind about the evidence. The family view is, Mr Rumpel, that you shouldn't be helping Dr Mahmoud Khan in any way, shape or form. Is that the view of the meeting? Two rides at him, sir. My boy Will here. He took a shine to Tiffany. And he got to know Dr. Mahmood pretty well. I made Tiffany a fair proposal. And our Will had a lot to offer. Own home in the Epping area. Porsche car, wasn't it? No, Dad. Lamborghini. You didn't like him, did you, Will? Didn't take to him, no. Terrorism. You know what they got him for? Yes, but we haven't heard any evidence. And you know, I'm just an old taxi, that's what I am. If a client flags me down, I'm bound to take the fare. You defend him, then. But if anyone of the name of Timpson needs a legal brief in the future, I'm afraid we shall have to look elsewhere, Mr. Rumpole. Do I express the view of the meeting? I see. Naturally, I was perturbed at the Timson threat to the Rumpole economy, but Dr. Khan was my client, and I had to look after him. To that end, I called for a conference with Barrington Whiteside, the hospital administrator. 
We didn't meet in chambers. I preferred the less formal atmosphere of Pomeroy's wine bar. Tiffany and Bonnie Bernard were in attendance, and the proceedings were assisted by a bottle of Chateau Thames Embankment. He asked us to call him Barry, and seemed entirely convinced of Mahmoud's innocence. I agree with Tiffany. They've just picked on him because of his race. I can't stand racial prejudice. My wife is Pakistani. We've all four of us been friends for years, haven't we, Barry? Yes. And Mahmoud's done such great work at Oakwood. Do you know, Mr. Rumpel, visitors are rarely treated well at hospitals. They're not told much or made particularly welcome. Mahmoud's changed all that at Oakwood, hasn't he, Barry? He certainly has. There was an old building in the hospital grounds. He's turned it into a magnificent relatives and visitors centre. Mm. We have the best relations with visitors of any hospital in the country. Mm. So, do you believe that he'd be capable of any sort of crime? Of course not. He's got too much to lose. A beautiful wife and children. Splendid house on the right side of Kilburn. It's really Queen's Park. Benazir and I slum it down at the wrong end. Mm. We try not to show them how jealous we are. <laughs> oh, Barry, you know you and Benazir are always welcome in our house. Let's talk about your husband. Did you notice anything, anything at all unusual, in the week, or let's say the month, before he was arrested? He said he thought he was being followed. Huh? He said that once or twice. I'm not quite sure how he got the idea. When was that? Last year. We went away for a holiday just before Christmas. It was after that. Did he say who was following him? No, just that he'd noticed there'd be a man near him and he'd get off the bus just after Mahmoud did. Sometimes he turned round, but the man had managed to disappear. Was it always the same man? I think so, yes. Did he say why he thought anyone would follow him? Yes. He said he thought they were pestering him to buy more raffle tickets for the hospital ball. <laughs> he made a joke of it. He always made a joke of things. That was his way. Now, to get back to business, do you think you'd like me as a character witness? I think we'd love you as a character witness. There might be some difficulty with the hospital board about that, but whatever they say, even if they cut up rough, you can count on me being there, Mr. Rumpel. Mm. I'm not letting Mahmoud down. Well, thank you, Mr. Whiteside. My memoirs, chapter three. Brenda Hoskins, who sometimes turns up at the bridge club, tells me her barrister husband saw Rumpel with an extremely beautiful young woman in that awful wine bar he frequents. When challenged, he admitted it was the pool-eyed little number, wife of the terrorist he's defending. My reaction has been to advise that charming judge, Leonard Bullingham, that I'll be delighted to have lunch with him just as soon as he has a day off court. Rumpel has gone after the Royal Courts of Justice to try and get his terrorist out of prison. He says he's going to attack the whole system of imprisonment without trial. He's never more cheerful than when he's taking on an impossible case. My name's Rumpel. I understand I'm against you in the Khan case. Oh, my dear... I hope you're not going to attack me viciously. Everyone tells me you're a terror down at the Old Bailey. I wonder if that's true. <laughs> the speaker was Peter Plasto, QC. Youngish, good-looking, with a superior smile. 
I gathered he was the Prime Minister's favorite QC and valued friend, destined for a high place in the affairs of state. I haven't seen you much round the old Bailey. Oh, no. I avoid it as much as possible. Now, is there anything I can do to help you before we go into battle? Yes, there certainly is. You can give me full particulars of the charge against my client. <laughs> I'm afraid we don't do particulars. All I can tell you is that we have reason to believe your client indulges in terrorist activities. But what activities? Where? When? With whom? I'm very sorry. But the powers that be think it's far too dangerous to let you know that. When those sorts of details are referred to, you and your client will be asked to leave the court. You mean we'll never hear what the charges are? Not in any detail, no. And you call that justice? Perhaps justice isn't as important as security in these troubled times. We call it sensible. Then I'll have to make an application to the judge. Why don't you do just that? I'll be fascinated to hear what she makes of it. Mrs. Justice Templet had sat on the bench for many years. In fact, she was appointed when there were not nearly as many women judges as there are today. On her elevation, she seemed to feel it right to suppress any feminine qualities that might cause controversy. She wore no makeup, although it was said that she allowed herself a thin line of lipstick when trying murder cases. Her first name, which was Floribel, was kept strictly under wraps, never to be referred to. She behaved with particular severity towards any woman unfortunate enough to appear before her in a divorce case. She was flanked by other members of the committee, who seemed to have been placed there merely as bookends, because Floribel Template gave them little opportunity to intervene in the proceedings. Mr. Rumpole, we understand you have some sort of application to make. Indeed I have, my lady. And it's not some sort of application. Mm. It's an application which concerns our civil rights, our liberty, and the basic principles of the criminal law. Very well, you may proceed. Her ladyship sighed heavily and looked at me as though I were some woman taken in adultery or had at least been caught pinching knickers in Marks and Spencer's. You may make your point shortly. I can make it very shortly. <laughs> Dr. Kahn is at least entitled to know what the charges are against him. That he should be denied that right is unthinkable. That's all I have to say. Is it really, Mr. Rumpo? You're not normally at a loss for words. <laughs> at this, the bookends giggled obediently, and Peter Plasto smiled. Very well, if your ladyship wants further argument. To proceed with this case without knowing the charges would be as sensible as a treasure hunt in a dark room from which the treasure had been completely removed. I needn't trouble you to reply to Mr. Rumpo's argument, Mr. Plaster. I'm grateful to your ladyship. It's well known that the government cannot disclose this information to the appellant or his legal advisers. To do so would be to disclose the sources of the information. Mr. Rumpo, as is well known, has practiced in criminal courts for many years, and he appears from his present submission to be living in the past. <laughs> It is for us on this committee to deal with present circumstances and present dangers. No further details of charges, as Mr. Rumpole calls them, will be given to Dr. Kahn. I'm grateful to your ladyship. The so-called trial continued. 
We had to leave the court while Plasto told her ladyship and the bookends what the case was all about. I called Barrington Whiteside, who gave Khan a good report, and Mahmoud, who said he wasn't a terrorist, and then I rose to make my final speech. This government, which wouldn't know a constitutional right if it came up and shouted in its ear, has told us that the terrorists want to destroy our way of life, our civilization, everything we hold most dear. Well, all I can say is that our government is working night and day to help them to destroy our civilization and to give away our most precious liberties. You can take them, says the government today. You can have Magna Carta. We've got no use for it. And while we're about it, we'll throw in the presumption of innocence and the Bill of Rights. All I could ask your ladyship to do is to decide Dr. Khan's case according to the principles of a fair trial which we have fought and struggled for over the centuries. Let Dr. Khan be told the charges he faces and then let him answer them. Mr. Rumpole, have you anything more to say? Only this. Ask yourself what justice really means and then do it. That was a fine speech, Mr. Rumpole. Mr. Rumpole always makes fine speeches, but they don't always win cases. Thank you very much, Mr. Bernard. There's no justice. A very little nowadays, I'm afraid. But one has to think of another way out. Don't give up hope. I shall not trust in hope. You will tell my wife all that has happened? Of course we shall tell her. So Dr. Khan went back to Belmarsh, and I headed off to the Myrtle Restaurant where Peter Plasto had unexpectedly invited me to lunch. I'd been to the Myrtle once with Hilda, and it was as I remembered it. Waiters with white aprons, soft lights, quiet, contented voices of people unknown to me who had become celebrities on television. Peter Plasto tasted the wine. I've chosen a rather unpretentious little Saint-Emilion rumple. Hope you find it amusing. I'm sure I'll find it hilarious. I took a mouthful. It was a cut above Chateau Thames embankment, but I couldn't for a moment see its joke. I've got good news for you. Well, I could do with some of that at the moment. The International Court says we mustn't imprison people without trial. Khan's being released. Thank you. I'm surprised. I'm sure his family will be delighted. So you see, we're not so bad as you said in court. You aren't? <laughs> I can speak for the government. Now I'm to become the new Minister of Justice. Mm. The announcement's to be made tomorrow. I suppose I should congratulate you. Mm. Cheers. Cheers. Of course you should. Particularly when you hear what I've got to offer you. Another shot of that extraordinary wine? Of course. But what I need to say, Rumpole, is this. You've become a well-known figure in law, and you have gained something of a reputation among young and impressionable lawyers. Well, I suppose I might have gained a certain notoriety. In fact, some of them would describe you as a national treasure. Mm. That's possible. I'm afraid my wife Hilda might argue... I would but... say you are a national treasure. Mm. Quite definitely. And, as I say, we'll be releasing your client, Khan. In return for that, I have a favour to ask. What's that? We don't want a lawyer of your age and stature who may be admired by the younger generation rocking the boat. Which boat is that, exactly? 
the ship of state. The Prime Minister is doing his best in the war against terrorism. Can't have his hands tied by outdated law. You mean like Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights? I heard you at the Psyche Appeal for Dr. Khan. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, that was held in private. But if a lawyer of your standing gave vent to such opinions in public, well, it wouldn't be helpful at all. So, what are you suggesting? You've worked hard, Rumpole, but soon the briefs may stop arriving. What about a safe job, hmm? With a pension at the end of it? How does his honour Judge Rumpole sound to you? You mean a circus judge? Circuit Judge Rumpole. Of course, when you're on the bench, it would be most inappropriate for you to make political statements. And I'm sure you wouldn't want to criticise a government that had given you such promotion. You asked me what his honour Judge Rumpole sounded like. Yes. Well, to me, it sounds disgusting. And I shall carry on abusing your government from the rooftops if necessary. Then there's nothing more I can do. For you, or for your client. <coughs> Excuse me. I must go. I have a meeting with the powers that be. Fortunately, he remembered to pay the bill. But I had to forego my summer pudding and make my way back to the conference in Chambers. There were three people in my room when I returned, and I expected smiles of delight and gratitude when I told them that Dr. Khan had been released. On the contrary, Bonnie Bernard looked solemn, Barrington Whiteside angry, and <laughs> Tiffany was in tears. He's under house arrest. It's an outrage. Yeah. He can't leave the house. He's a good doctor, and he can't leave the house to go to the hospital he loves. It seems our country is just as bad as everywhere else, Mr Rumpole. People are locked up for no reason. We still have jury trials where the prosecution has to prove its case. We need to get one of them for Dr Carr. It's all we're asking for. Just get him a fair trial, Mr Rumpole. A jury would acquit him for sure. The thing is, Rumpole, how do we persuade the authorities to charge him with some criminal offence? I don't know yet. Oh. I'm very sorry. What could I do? Ought I to retire from the scene and become a circus judge? They had come to me for help, and I'd been afraid to admit that the situation was hopeless. Another irritating thing about Rumpo. It seems he was offered what he calls a circus judgeship, and he was mad enough to refuse. He said he didn't want to get a complaint called judgeitis, which he described as a bad attack of pomposity and self-regard, with a habit of sucking up to juries in order to get Rumpole's clients convicted. I told him I had now met Leonard Bullingham, who was charming, and was not in the least like that. He thanked me for giving him that information. I said that he's perfectly charming. No, said Rumpole, that his name's Leonard. Leonard has fixed a date for our lunch at his gentleman's club in St. James. We lunch in the smaller dining room, he said, the one that allows women. Yeah, I can recommend the roast beef. 
They do a particularly fine Yorkshire pudding here, and the club claret is quite respectable. Mm, that'll be a change from the stuff Rumpole brings home from that dreadful little wine bar of his. Oh, what a mistake. Only the best is good enough for Hilda, eh? <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> I have to say, Hilda, I've been looking forward to this little lunch together for some time. I've been looking forward to it, too. Uh, I'm interested in seeing your club. Oh, oh, so glad you said that. My wife, well, she's no longer my wife. We're divorced, of course, but... Uh, she didn't visit the club at all. Really? <laughs> she was a woman who, who couldn't join in. Well, I don't suppose she was allowed to join in. Anyway, at least not in the large dining room. <laughs> That's very sharp of you. <laughs> very sharp. <laughs> if the day ever comes when they allow women members in this club, which would be over my dead body, you, Hilda, are the first person I put up as a female member. We had gone through the roast beef, and Leonard had instructed me to choose the profiteroles from the sweet trolley. Mm. Rumpole's not an easy man in court. I get the feeling he's not an easy man at home. Would I be right? Quite right. <laughs> After a divorce, of course, one does get lonely in the evenings. I just wonder, Hilda, if you've ever thought of going through what I did I mean, uh, has the word divorce ever entered your mind? Oh, plenty of times. Plenty of times? Oh, well, that's encouraging. All I can say is that Rumpole's a lucky man to have you to come home to, Hilda. And the next time you think of divorce, I'm sure you'll remember this lunch we had together, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, now, may I refill your glass with the club's exclusive claret? Thank you. There was no more talk about divorce after that. And after lunch, Leonard showed me the club's interesting collection of porcelain and numerous portraits of old judges. Then he put me in a cab. He has an account with this taxi firm. I went straight into the box room to add this report of our lunch to my memoirs. I didn't tell Rumpole that I had received what amounted to a proposal of marriage from Judge Bullingham. I didn't mention that fact to Rumpole. I don't think he would quite understand. In any event, we're off on holiday next week, so this is not a time to be rocking the boat. One significant event occurred before we went off on our holiday. As part of our continuing legal education, the Home Secretary, the Right Honourable Fred Sugden, would appear for a question-and-answer session in the Temple Hall. I got myself a ticket and sat down to watch a shortish square man being interviewed by Soapy Sam Ballard, the so-called head of our chambers. The occasion was considered intriguing enough to be relayed on television. Can I ask you, Home Secretary, what it feels like to be on the home territory of the judges and lawyers of whom you have been a little critical in your recent speeches? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was brought up in the back streets of Birmingham. I knew nothing of this place where judges and their fathers and their grandfathers ate fancy dinners and tried to take the law into their own hands. <laughs> 
keeping the law unchanged and unchangeable. But judges don't make the laws. Politicians like me, who had an 8,000 majority at the last election, do. And what do that 8,000 and millions of other voters really want? They want to sleep safely in their beds. And they are a bit interested in legal theories carefully designed to keep the crook and the terrorist out of trouble. Well, thank you for that, Home Secretary. Now, uh, who's got the first question? I have. Oh, <clears throat> well, what's the question? I have a client who is under house arrest. He's never been tried. He's got no idea of the reason, if any, for his imprisonment. He can't carry on his practice as a doctor. Why can't you charge him with terrorist activities or give him a fair and decent trial in front of a jury? You know perfectly well, Mr. Um... Rumpo. Ah, Mr. Rumpo. Yes, I've been told to expect a contribution from you. <laughs> I, um... I understand you looked on as a sort of a permanent fixture down at the Old Bailey. You've been there as long as anyone can remember. Yeah, well, never mind about me and the Old Bailey. When can my doctor client be given a fair trial according to the law? Well, I'm sure, Mr. Rumpole of the Bailey, you're anxious to get a nice, fat brief out of a jury trial. It's not a question of a fat brief. It's not only that you seem never to have heard of Magna Carta or the Bill of Rights. Now you're convicting poor people. The homeless, those sleeping in doorways. You're convicting them without any sort of trial, fining them when they have no money, and all on the say-so of overworked policemen acting on hearsay evidence. All this and imprisonment without trial. Aren't you a lawless government? Let me ask you this, Mr. Rumpel. How do you take notes in court nowadays? Well, you use a pen and my notebook. Would that be a quill pen? <laughs> no, a fountain pen. <laughs> so, you're not computer literate? I'm literate. I know very little about computers. That's the trouble with your sort of lawyer, Mr. Rumpole. You can't move with the times. Things like jury trials and the presumption of innocence may have been all very well in their day, but times change. History moves on. We need quicker and more reliable results. Modernise, Mr. Rumpole, that's what you need to do. Modernise? You'd rather take the law back to some date before Magna Carta. <laughs> I, I, I think you've had a fair old innings, Mr. Rumpole. I'm sure there are a lot of other people who'd like to take up their questions. I sat down and was silent. Whatever had happened to me, it certainly wasn't cricket. When I got home to Hilda, she said, That Fred Sugden seems a fairly straightforward sort of fellow. What? Well, did you have to be so rude to him, Rumpo? Oh. Later, Bonnie Bernard rang me. A memorable performance on the telly, Rumpo, but I thought you'd planned to get round the Home Secretary. Yes. Weren't you going to try to charm him into giving Khan a jury trial? Thank you, Bernard. I went to bed angry with both of them, but angriest with myself for doing my client no good at all. I was also troubled with the feeling that I knew Fred Sugden from some distant event I couldn't now recall. I tried to put the memory of that not particularly triumphant evening behind me. We were, after all, about to go on holiday. I must say I have always rather disliked Brighton. 
It has a slightly raffish air about it, a little tarnished. Jovial, but not quite respectable. Descriptions which have, I regret to say, been applied to Rumpel. We listened to the brass band and walked along the pebbled beach. And in the Xanadu, a small hotel near the station, Hilda made friends with Ian and Mara Antrim. This Ian Antrim was a pleasant enough fellow, good-looking, curly hair, gone grey, but I saw he looked at me from time to time in a nervous sort of way. One evening, after our wives, he called them the girls, had gone to bed, he bought me a brandy in the empty hotel lounge and said quietly but with some anxiety, You, um... You won't tell Myra, will you, Mr. Rumpole? Mm-hmm. About what? Well, the Scarlet Band, of course. Myra knows nothing whatever about it. The Scarlet Band. The memory of some long-distant criminal trial began to return to me. Well, wasn't that a, a group at some university? Reading or Bristol? Gloucestershire. Gloucestershire, mm. that's right. That's right. You protested a lot. Well, we had a lot to protest about. Mm. Vietnam, apartheid, mm. the treatment of blacks in the southern states. Yes, didn't, didn't you plan to attack an American reading room somewhere off the King's Road? Break the windows, bust up the furniture, something ridiculously ambitious. Mm. Yeah, I've got to admit it. Yes, as you did in court, from what I remember. <sighs> of course I was young. <laughs> now I've got a decent job as an estate agent around the Sussex area, but... Well, that time... Looking back on it, it turned out to be the only part of my life when I felt really alive. Mm -hmm. I remember in my mitigation speech, I said you were a hopeless bunch of foolish youths who would never have hurt a fly. Yes, I know. I know you said that. Yeah. Made us very angry at the time. Well, if I hadn't said it, you might have got three years or four, not just twelve months. All those threats of bombs, did you really mean them? I'm afraid our leader did. One of us had even found a book on how to make explosives in your own kitchen. Mm -hmm. One of you? Which one? Was it you? Oh, no. Not me, no, no. Now, the one that never came with us to the American Library. And I'm sure he was the one that tipped off the police. Mm -hmm. I suppose he thought it was a better bet to be on their side. We despised him for that, but we didn't give him away. We never referred to him in any of our statements. Well, you, you may remember that, Mr. Rumpole. Yeah, yeah we, we, we never implicated him or anybody else. Yeah. Well, who was he, then? The one who grasped? There was a considerable silence, then. No sound but the ticking of a clock on the mantelpiece. Then Ian Antrim took a long swig of brandy and gave me the name. And the empty lounge echoed with the quite unexpected sound of my laughter. <laughs> In part one of Rumpole and the Reign of Terror by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Timothy West. His wife Hilda was Prunella Scales. Judge Bullingham, Christopher Benjamin. Tiffany Kahn, Lily Bevan. Soapy Sam Ballard, Michael Cochran, and Bonnie Bernard, Bruce Alexander. Dr. Mahmoud Khan was Shiv Grevar. Barrington Whiteside, Geoffrey Whitehead. Will Timpson, Ben Crow. Peter Plasto, Christopher Scott. 
Mrs. Justice Templet, Joanna David, Fred Sugden, Kim Durham, and Ian Antrim, Nigel Anthony. Other parts were played by members of the company. Rumpole and the Reign of Terror is directed by Marilyn Imrie and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4.